Winter's here, and the ice is thick and sticky. You're heading out early with your friends for a day of epic ice climbing. The first few moves are a dream, your tools sticking perfectly in the plastic ice. But just then, under the crux, you stem out with your left foot and you blow out the crotch of your brand new climbing pants. But lucky for you, you can find a new pair at the Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop located in the heart of Spinard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need to get on your next outdoor adventure, whether you're mountaineering, rock and ice climbing, hiking, pack crafting, skiing, or more. The Hoarding Marmot also has a fine selection of maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and other odds and ends to fill out your kit, plus great prices to fit any budget. Make sure and stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in a gym is the pump. Let's say you drain your biceps. Blood is rushing into your muscles, and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight. It's like somebody blowing air into, into your muscle. It just blows up, and it feels different. It feels fantastic. This episode of The Fern Line is also presented by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym is a great place to keep your forearms strong and your mind centered any time of year. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms, Alaska Rock Gym has something for everyone. As always, Alaska Rock Gym is also working hard to prioritize your health and safety in this time of COVID-19. So to learn more, you can stop by to take a tour of the facility or check out alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. In this brand new season, season five, I'll be talking with alpinists, mountain athletes, wilderness adventurers, and more. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with extraordinary people, the folks who choose to live full value lifestyles in some of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. What's up, everyone? It's been almost nine months since my last episode, and I have to say, it feels really good to be back. I'm rested, rejuvenated, and ready for action. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, I'm so stoked for this season, and I've got some absolutely incredible interviews and stories lined up for all of you to enjoy. Little business before we dive into the show. If you're new to the podcast, there's a few ways you can really help out. You can support the Fern Line by becoming a Patreon backer, where you can get early access to episodes, bonus clips, stickers, original music by me, and more. 
To sign up for Patreon or to make a one-time contribution via PayPal, just head on over to thefernline.com and click on the support tab. And while you're over at the website, you can also pick up Fernline t-shirts as well, so make sure to check those out. And of course, if you're low on funds due to your chronic dirtbag lifestyle, not only is that okay, but I fully support it. So don't worry, there's plenty of other ways you can help out. You can leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can simply tell someone. Word of mouth is the best kind of promotion, and it really helps with the grassroots vibe I'm going for. So whichever way you choose to keep this show moving forward, I'm very grateful for your continued support. All right. So with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch, camp chair, or inside of your exposed high altitude shrub bivy on the windswept Tibetan plateau and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line. The real reason I wanted to do it was to get into that place to see it for myself and to get it into my bones, to really experience what it was like to be in a place that was nearly untouched by human beings that had not seen our hand or footprint on the surface of the planet. On today's episode of The Fern Line, we'll get to know legendary mountaineer, outdoor adventurer, author, and conservationist, Rick Ridgway. I first learned about Rick back in the early 90s when I read his mountaineering classic, The Last Step, which details the 1978 first American ascent on K2. Rick was an early hero of mine, and I admired his tenacity, grit, and determination in the mountains. But it turns out the world's highest peaks were just one chapter in Rick's life, a life that's been filled with adventure, catastrophe, enduring love, and heart-wrenching loss. A few months ago, I caught wind of Rick's new memoir, Life Lived Wild, which came out via Patagonia Books on October 26th. The book describes the many adventures in Rick's life, everything from a gripping stay in a vicious Panamanian jail at 24 years old to one of his closest companions dying in his arms on a remote mountain in eastern Tibet, to traverses in remote regions of Tibet and Borneo, and to the windswept, frigid summits of Antarctica. After finishing the book, I finally understood why Rolling Stone magazine once dubbed Rick the real Indiana Jones. This last fall, I was fortunate to catch up with Rick when we talked for almost three hours over the course of two separate interviews. It would be impossible to cover Rick's life in such a short amount of time, so we talked mostly about his early years, and at the end of it, I was left mesmerized by his stories. But more importantly, I was touched by Rick's honesty, his humor, his grace, and his enduring wisdom. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Rick Ridgway. I was born and raised in Southern California, 
born in Long Beach, and my family, when I was uh, just uh, 12 or 13 years old, uh, relocated to Orange County when it was still quite rural. But my father, in those years, was an avid scuba diver, one of the very first scuba divers in California, and even in the world. He used some of Jacques Cousteau's uh, very first equipment in the early 50s when he started in that sport. So growing up, I used to follow him on the little boat we had out to Catalina Island on his skin diving adventures. And I would put on my fins and snorkel and cruise around the surface. And I could go down 15 or 20 feet watching him and his buddies at deeper depths in their scuba gear. So from that experience, I I got into my bones pretty early, uh, a sense of adventure and adventure sports and in the outdoors. And like any kid that age, you know, my father was also my hero. But he also, I didn't realize it then until I was older looking back, was pretty irresponsible. Um, Maybe not as much as a father, but more as a husband to my mother. And when I was uh, 12 or 13, uh, and we had relocated to Orange County, my father and mother bought a rural piece of property near Lake Tahoe in Northern California. My father moved up there, and I uh, moved up with him, just the two of us. And the idea was that my mother and younger brother would follow. And I soon realized that my father was really not doing much in the way of getting the, the ranchette ready for the full family. But rather, he was hanging out at the bar with his barfly buddies and was going from one job to another. And one day, coming home from what then was my first year in high school, in a four-year high school, uh, the bus slowed and then uh, came to a stop in front of what used to be my house. But instead of a house, there was just a chimney standing around the smoldering embers of my house that had been burned to the ground and everything I owned in it was gone. And so was my father. He fled and uh, essentially abandoned me. And I learned years later he burned the house down hoping to get insurance money. And it really hit home then that he didn't have what it took to be a husband, much less a father. And two things that happened then. The first was reading a National Geographic at at about the same time, the story of the first American ascent of Everest and seeing that picture on the inside of the magazine of Jim Whitaker, the first American to climb Everest, standing on the summit holding his ice axe up with the flags of the United States and under that the National Geographic Society tied to the shaft, whipping in the hurricane winds <clears throat> with his oxygen mask on and his big down parka and down pants. And I, I saw that image and it disconnected. And I told myself that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that guy. And the second thing that happened was I asked my best friend if I could live with him until the school year was out. And my mother down in Southern California agreed Uh, And looking back later, after I became a father myself, I realized how bold that was on her part. So I moved in with my best friend and spent a summer with his family 
at a vacation cabin on a lake near Lake Tahoe in the High Sierra, where on the other side of the lake there was a kind of steep-sided peak. It was really, I would learn later, a volcanic plug called Thunder Mountain. And thinking of that article in the Geographic, I told my buddy, let's go climb that thing. So we knew his parents wouldn't allow us to do that, so we told him we were going on an all-day hike. And uh, we veered off the trail and followed animal tracks to the base of the peak and started up. And it got pretty steep, especially in one section just below the summit where there was a, a little step. I didn't even know what it was called in those years. And, and it was pretty vertical, and I couldn't figure out how to climb it until I had this idea that I had my buddy stand at the base of the step, and then I stood on his shoulders, and I got and I got hands onto the edge of the step, and then I hung on for everything I had while he climbed up my body, hanging on my belt <laughs> strap. And then he got to the top and pulled me up. And we made the summit. We got to the step on the way down, and instead of down climbing, we just jumped, taking care not to to roll down the rest of the precipice. But but we managed it, and and it just stuck. Like that's confirmed this this feeling that I had from that National Geographic article, that's what I wanted to do. And I, if I have any, you know, among my attributes, as we all have them, <laughs> I suppose I'm um, a bit obsessive compulsive. And when I latch onto something, I just often tend to really latch hard and, and go deep. So in high school, I re after the first year, I moved back to Southern California with my mother and younger brother and and I did everything I could to find climbers to climb with. Couldn't find anybody. Couldn't convince my high school buddies. But um, I did uh, find a magazine in a sporting goods store called Summit. And in there, I found a store that sold equipment. So I went there and bought an ice axe and some boots and crampons, just like Jim Whitaker had. And I bought the only thing I could find that was close to a tutorial on climbing called Freedom of the Hills, published by the Mountaineers, the classic Freedom of the Hills. And then I did talk two high school buddies into going up to Mount San Gorgonio, the highest mountain in Southern California, with me in the winter. And we camped on snow. First time any of us had done that. And, and then by myself with my Freedom of the Hills guide in one hand and my ISX in the other, I'd read a section on how to self-arrest. And then I'd I rolled down the slope above, or slid down the slope above our tent and, until I figured I knew how to self-arrest. And then I was ready to climb the mountain, but my buddies didn't want to go with me. So I, I went by myself and, and I was hooked. So that's how it got started. Right. Uh, and then I know after that, you graduated from high school and your mom essentially got you to an outward bound school. Yeah, she was watching this. <clears throat> obsession um, with mountaineering and climbing, you know, with increased anxiety. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> especially when I, yeah. after that San Gregonio uh, climb, I, I climbed Mount Baldy several times. And, and once in the winter, uh, kind of in the same period, time period, uh, the mountain had iced up. And there's a little bit of a steep traverse called the Devil's Backbone on that hike. And in the winter, covered with ice, it was really problematic. And, and I realized I didn't really know what I was doing. And I could easily have 
slipped and not been able to stop my fall. And, uh, you know, it could have been it. And I had enough common sense to, to realize that I was in jeopardy. And my mother picked up on that. And as a high school graduation present, sent me to what then was only the first year of the Outward Bound uh, School in Oregon. And Outward Bound wasn't really a mountaineering school. Um, you know, it was a an outdoor <clears throat> experience school. Uh, and <clears throat> it was, um, the, the instructor was literally a, a Marine Corps boot camp <laughs> veteran. <laughs> and that's how he ran the course. And I actually loved that part of it. Yeah. You know, the, the part about having to get up before dawn right. and running with this year, skim swimming trunks on to this icy creek where you had to dive in and then <laughs> run back to your tent on a dusty dirt road so that by the time you got there from your morning bath, you were covered with a layer of mud that you had to wear for the rest of the day. I, I, I thought all that was just great. And the climbing part, fortunately, the assistant instructor was a really good rock climber. And he was a college professor and a bit of a wonk. And he hated the Marine Corps aspect of it. And he was a, you know, a dope smoking climber. And so I got a little whiff of both. And that was really cool because I, I loved both aspects of it. Yeah. Um, it was all really cool. But I did from this assistant instructor, you know, learn some basic rock climbing. And then most important, I met another guy who became my best friend then who also wanted to be a climber, and, and we were in it together. So he, he um, worked at a gas station. And, and one day, just after Outward Bound, this guy came in to fill his tank. And, you know, in those years, you didn't pump your own gas, but you, you had the kid do it. And um, the guy handed his keys to my buddy to unlock his gas cap. And there was a rerp on his keychain, <laughs> uh, a Chenard rerp. And my buddy looked at it and said, are you a climber? And he goes, yeah. And so my buddy shared with him my and his dreams to learn how to rock climb. And he took us under his wing and took us up to Takeets and really taught us how to, how to, how to, do, how to rock climb properly. Uh, and then, oh, you know, I was really hooked. Now, meanwhile, my father, the ne'er-do-well, had ended up in the South Pacific. Um, I didn't see him for nearly two years after he'd burned the house down. Uh, he got some sort of a job in the Marshall Islands tracking downrange ICBMs. And the company that he worked with relocated him to Hawaii. And he wanted me to come and live with him and go to college there, which was really appealing in all ways, except Hawaii didn't have any mountains to climb. But I had been grown up in the ocean with following him as a scuba diver in high school. I'd taken up surfing. And I thought, you know, I can go to Hawaii and surf and sail and uh, dive. And in the summers, I'll go someplace where I can climb and I'll do it all. So I did. I relocated to Hawaii and, uh, and, that, and, I, and I really became passionate about sailing uh, my first big adventure was uh, the summer after my uh, freshman year. 
when I thought I was going to go climbing, but I was, I got, instead I got invited to join five other young kids, four other young kids and one, one guy a little bit older who had this 36 foot sloop and we sailed it to Tahiti and all through the Leeward Islands. And it was my first big adventure. So that idea of adventure and adventure travel and exploring remote places really got into my blood with that experience. Reconnected with his father and committed to his college studies in Hawaii, Rick was geographically separated from the lofty mountains that fueled his adolescent dreams, but that didn't equate to a lack of adventure in his life. Rick embarked on sailing adventures with his friends, and during his off time from school, he traveled to Mexico and Peru, honing his Spanish-speaking skills and immersing himself in the art of high-altitude climbing. It was during this time that his passion for mountaineering truly came into focus. But before he embarked on a more ambitious climbing career, there was still one adventure to be had out on the high seas, an adventure that would challenge him and shape him in ways he could never have imagined. college at the University of Hawaii, I was doing a lot of adventure sailing uh, around the islands, uh, between the islands and the mainland, uh, and also that one early trip down to the South Pacific. And then uh, for two summers of my sophomore and junior years, I was uh, away to the mainland uh, or in Mexico, uh, where I was continuing to follow my passion for rock climbing and mountaineering. But then in my senior year, uh, expecting I would go back to the mainland and continue to climb. Three weeks before I was going to graduate, I got invited to join uh, the crew on a 100-foot catch that belonged to a rich uh, aluminum magnet industrialist. And the offer was to uh, work as a paid deckhand on this guy's boat, sailing back to uh, French Polynesia, and then from there over to the mainland and eventually into the Caribbean. And I had three more courses to go. I had three weeks left and three courses to get my degree. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I wasn't, I was frozen almost. So I went to the dean of the college and he said, well, there's no, there's no decision to be made. And I thought, oh, that's it, you know, that kind of popped the bubble. And then he said, you got to go sailing. <laughs> and, and I said, what do you mean? I got to graduate. He goes, listen, you only got three weeks to go. I'm going to figure out how your professors can proctor your final exams. You take all your book and course materials you can get from them on your boat and study. And when you get someplace where they can proctor the exams to you, then if you pass them, I'll send you your degree. And I thought, God, how cool is that? So 
off we went on my, another big sailing adventure. And I was getting paid $400 a month in $100 bills <laughs> uh, with no place to really spend the loot. And I was having these great adventures all across French Polynesia and uh, the Leeward Islands. And then uh, when we're passing through the Tuamotus to the Marquesas where the owner of uh, the big boat decided she wanted to go to Mexico for Christmas. And we told her that that was a loony idea because it was against the wind. It was a windward passage over about 5,000 miles if you counted the distance of the tax. And she insisted, because she and her husband wouldn't be on the boat, they would fly home and wait for us to get to Mazatlan where she could have her Christmas. Uh, and we did that. It was a terrific passage. <clears throat> Took over a month. But it was a big boat, and uh, it was a powerful boat. Uh, had a, the, the, the mast was 110 feet off the deck. And in Mexico, after Christmas, uh, in a successful reunion, we, the owners decided they wanted to go to the Caribbean. So they left, and we took the boat down uh, Central America to Panama. And we were waiting to transit the canal when anchored next to a big 82-foot schooner, Alden schooner, I met these two guys on the boat who invited me into a scheme where one of them had spent some time in the highlands of Colombia with Indians who worked in emerald mines who apparently pocketed a lot of the emeralds that they mined <laughs> and also had single-shot twenty-two rifles but very little ammunition uh, to use just for um, hunting, uh, small game and, and, and birds, you know, uh, sustenance hunting. And so this guy had met somebody in the rifle range in the canal zone, in the U.S. part of the canal zone, who had access, access to 22 shells. And these guys said, listen, come in with us and we'll pool all our money. And by then I had a couple thousand bucks and we'll buy some 22 round uh, shells and we'll sail them down to Columbia and we'll smuggle them up into the highlands and we'll trade them to these guys uh, for their emeralds. And then we'll take the emeralds back to the boat and then we'll sail out to Fiji because there are Hindis that live in Fiji who are gem merchants and we can cash the emeralds in there and get local currency to buy an island and we'll start a resort with our schooner. And it would be, as I say in my book, still quite a few years before I would be able to judge the attributes of a business plan. Right, right. <laughs> and come, come anywhere close to knowing what business risk is in any business plan. So I put in my money and we ordered 50,000 rounds of 22 shells. And the guy at the rifle range said, it's going to take a while to get this amount of ammo, maybe three weeks or a month. So we took the boat out to an island off the coast of Panama that was a resort island. And we anchored there uh, just to, you know, goof off and wait three weeks and met some girls on the beach and invited them on the boat and on our adventure and cruise, which they accepted. So, you know, I was like in heaven. Um, I didn't think things could get any better than that until one day uh, two of the girls and my other two 
sailing buddies were in the canal zone buying provisions when one of the girls, Candace, and I were on the boat uh, getting it ready for the long passage to Colombia and then Fiji when a Panamanian patrol boat pulled alongside. And at first I thought that they just wanted me to untie from this buoy that I was tied to because I knew it was a government buoy, so I hoped that they didn't mind. I told them, oh, just a second, got to start the engine and I'll, I'll, take, I'll get off your buoy. Take me one minute. And as soon as I said, start the engine, <clears throat> all these guns came out and pointed right at me. And they boarded the boat <clears throat> and arrested Candace and me uh, because apparently they had got wind that we had ordered all this ammunition and they had somehow assumed we were going to be trading it, not for emeralds, but for marijuana. So they took us on the boat to the mainland, to Panama City, and they took me into the main jail in Panama City and took Candace to the women's prison. And I had no idea what kind of trouble I might be in or any idea how long I might be in jail. And I had no idea whether it was going to be really a bad scene or not. And, and by the first, by the next morning, I knew because they th initially threw me in a holding tank that was kind of like for drunks. There must have been close to 100 people in this giant room. Well, it wasn't that big because it was a little crowded, but it's a big holding tank, mostly for drunks. And sometime that night, they threw in some young kid who was really drunk, and, and he started yelling and screaming and, and cursing at the guards. And there was a, a window alongside the, a, along one side of this cell holding tank uh, that was kind of below street level, but you could see through this high, narrow window, the guards marching by every minute or two, and, and they would stop and just stare in and look at this kid screaming and cursing. And we were, not me, but the other, some of the others in the, in this holding tank were trying to get this kid to quiet down, and, and he was too drunk to really know what he was doing. And then he passed out. And we all kind of halfway fell asleep on the hard concrete, on scraps of cardboard. And sometime in the early morning, the cell door opened and these two guards came in and, and grabbed the kid and drug him away. And as he woke up and screamed, they just pummeled him with their batons. And then, I don't know, an hour later perhaps, just before dawn, they threw him back in the cell and he was beaten badly. And we tried to attend to him as best we could, but after just a bit, he died. And then I knew that this was serious. Three days later, I was transferred to a, the permanent part of the prison, to a, a cell that was, I don't know, eight feet wide or something, and maybe 15 feet long. And uh, it just had one window with bars on it, and, and the door cell was barred, of course. But interestingly, it was open uh, to a corridor uh, that at the end was double-locked with guards there with their rifles. But each cell door was unlocked so that if you need to go to the bathroom, because there was no latrine in the cells, you just stuck your arm out and yelled llave, which means key in Spanish, and... They would signal it was okay to leave the cell and 
they'd follow you with your rifles as you went into the latrine. So I got called out after two or three days to follow a guard to an interrogation room, which you can imagine, I was gripped. I had no idea if I was going to be tortured. But I was interrogated by the good cop, bad cop combo, who just wanted me to confess to smuggling marijuana, but I just told them exactly what had happened, and they sent me back to the cell. And then the next day pulled me out, and the same guys were there, continuing the interrogation. I told them the same answers, and they were getting frustrated, but they didn't beat me up or anything, so I was sent back to my cell. And when I'd been arrested, I'd been allowed to take a very small stuff sack with just a few things in it. I had some paper to write journal notes in and a little bit of tobacco because like a lot of climbers and sailors in those days, I occasionally rolled and smoked a cigarette. And my little stuff sack was gone. And it wasn't that it had anything in it that I really needed, although, of course, the notes and the little pieces of paper were important in the pen. But rather, if I didn't do anything about these cellmates stealing it, I knew the abuse would just get worse. And I had no idea how long I was going to be in this hellhole. And I knew I had to do something about it. So I confronted them. There was maybe seven or eight of them all jammed in this small cell. And they all denied knowing anything about it. They didn't dismiss that I even had a stuff sack including the guy who I knew was the ringleader, who was one of the younger people in the cell, but he seemed to call the shots. So I sat on one of the two bunks, the lower of two bunks, one of which belonged to him, but the protocol was that you could use the bunk for a seat during the day, but you had to give it to its owner at night and sleep on the concrete, which I did. So I was sitting on his bunk with my elbows on my knees, looking at the floor of the cell, watching everybody resume their pacing as we did all day long, just going from window to door, from one set of bars to the other set. And when this ringleader kid passed me and approached the cell door, I launched as hard as I could off the bunk and grabbed him, his head and drove it as hard as I could into the cell door and then started punching him as hard as I could, knowing I had to do something and it had to have force. And just as I expected, the other guys piled on me and started pummeling me. I could hear the guards' whistles blow and they were running down the hallway towards us and they were screaming when they arrived at the cell and started pulling people off of me and As they grabbed the last guy on top of me, he said into my ear, as soon as you're asleep, gringo, you're dead. And I thought that was it. I probably was dead. So the guards were pissed at me. Uh, I didn't know what that would lead to either. But as I said, the cell doors were open, and the guy who was the lead prisoner in the cell directly across from the one I was in walked out his door and walked over to my cell and told the head guard, or he told the 
first he told the, the kid who was the leader of my cell where my stuff sack was. And the kid at first didn't say anything. And then this other guy who was about 50 years old looked at the kid and said, give me the gringo stuff sack now. And the kid walked over to his bunk and turned one end of the mattress over where there was a slit in it that was hidden and pulled my stuff sack out and gave it to me. And then the lead prisoner, the guy in his mid-50s, whose name was Magillon, looked at the head guard and said, I want the gringo in my cell. So the head guard said, yes, sir. I mean, that's the influence that this guy had. So I was transferred across the corridor to Magallon's cell, where he introduced me to my new cellmates, who were all long-term prisoners. Magallon was in for life, for murder. And he looked at me and he said, that took guts. I couldn't even answer. I was so shaken. And he said, I like men who have guts. And he took me under his wing, and he became my protector. And then I was okay, but it was still a horrifying experience. And I was in prison for only a month, a little over, I suppose, but seemed like much longer than that. Just in those few weeks, I, in addition to that kid who got beat to death, I witnessed uh, four other prisoners shot to death in an, in an attempted escape. I witnessed other prisoners who seemed to be as strong as men or human beings could get break down into whimpers when they would be selected to leave the prison and get transferred to the prison island called Koiba, which was a devil's island, where you usually didn't come back, where the main punishment was throwing prisoners into a lagoon full of crocodiles. Always the threat of getting transferred to Koiba. Every week they would line us up out in the courtyard and name those who got transferred. And as I said, they would often just break down. There was one, only one kid in the whole prison who had been to Koiba and returned. And he was completely deformed with the whole back of his neck and side of his face gone and, and healed in a horrible mass of scars where I was told that one of the guards had put his pistol in the kid's mouth and pulled the trigger on Koiba Island because the kid had done something he didn't like. Now, <laughs> you know, Evan, years later, I was going to Peru or to Chile on a conservation project, and I thought, you know, I'm going to book a, book a trip through Panama, and I'm going to spend a day, and I'm going to go back to that prison and and just stand outside and think about my life and the path I've had and the things that have happened to me, the, the fortune, the good luck and bad. So I went to do some research on the prison. It was called Carcel Modelo. Imagine that, a prison like that called the Model Prison. And I went online and found that there had been a huge civil society protest in Panama with hundreds and thousands of people who had been imprisoned in Carcel Modelo 
uh, and their families marching through Panama City and demanding the destruction of the prison. And the government had agreed and they had leveled the thing to the ground. So there was no prison to stand in front of. <laughs> but yet I thought, I thought that's cool. That's a cool ending as well. Fresh off his life-changing experience in the Panamanian prison, Rick ended up back in the lofty peaks of the Peruvian Andes. It was there that he forged one of his earliest and most important relationships with a young mountaineer named Chris Chandler. The duo would go on to climb a multitude of peaks in the Andes, but it turns out those climbs were just training for a much bigger arena. I never could have uh, become the mountaineer I did without the guidance of um, Ron Fear and Chris Chandler. Uh, my second season in Peru, after climbing in the Cordillera Blanca with Ron, we went on a rafting trip in the Amazon uh, where uh, Ron's boat got pinned uh, on some rocks and rapids and, and he drowned. So. I lost him and his guidance at an early age, but but Chris continued to keep me under his wing. And by that second and third season in Peru, where I went back year after year, uh, I had uh, graduated, as it were, and Chris and I were uh, climbing companions, and uh, and we were equals. We'd done several climbs and new routes together. And then when Chris got invited to go to Everest on the American Bicentennial Everest Expedition, he got the uh, organizers to invite me. So we were a climbing team uh, as part of the Everest team, uh, but always roped together and almost always out in the lead on the expedition through the icefall, where in those years you had to scout the route yourself and through the coom and up the Lhotse face. And then uh, just as the summit teams were getting selected, I had carried a load up to the south call to help the Sherpas out. And Chris had stayed behind because he wasn't feeling well. And then coming back to our camp in the upper end of the western coom at the base of the Lhotse face, uh, I found that the summit teams had been reorganized. And Chris, who was feeling better, had been moved up to the first team. And the expedition organizer, assuming that I was out of gas, having carried a load to the south call, needed a rest day, so I was put on the second team, and Chris and I were, were split. And it was hard for both of us. But Chris went on and, and reached the summit. And then just behind him, two days behind, uh, in the second bid, I got a lung problem that I thought might be pulmonary edema, but turned out later to be a pleurisy condition. But, but either way, I was knocked out down. And had no choice but to, to go down and go home. And I really felt sorry for myself. Uh, you know, I felt the victim of some bad luck of just because I had been trying harder to help out carrying a load, I got penalized for that in a way that 
hit by this circumstance of getting sick prevented me from going to the top one. Where if I'd really thought it through, I would have realized I probably would have got sick on summit day. I might have been in even greater jeopardy. But nevertheless, I was at 26 years old, pretty devastated. And I tried to reveal in the book where, looking back on it now, I can, I can see where the disappointment came from. And it was from my ego, from the reasons I wanted to climb Everest, which were, looking back on it later in my life, at my early years, really misplaced. That I was climbing that mountain for the wrong reasons, and it would take me many years to understand that. But then, uh, two years later, both Chris and I were invited to join uh, the 1978 American K2 expedition. And in those years, even after five previous attempts, Americans had never succeeded in climbing K2. In fact, the mountain had only been climbed twice by anybody ever. And this time, this expedition was led by Jim Whitaker, the same guy in the magazine picture in the National Geographic in 1963 who inspired me to want to become a climber. And here I was then, 28 years old. Uh, so essentially only, you know, 14 years after I'd seen that magazine article, there I was on an expedition with, uh, led by the guy that I wanted to be. <laughs> and I had to pinch myself on that one, but it seemed like an opportunity to climb a mountain again with Chris, and this time make up for the disappointment on the Everest climb. But at the same time, uh, as I started up the mountain, fearful that whatever problem I had on Everest with my lungs might return, and then there was just the mountain itself. Uh, it is such an incredible looking peak. There is nothing like it on, on the entire planet. Uh, and it was so intimidating. Uh, it's now, as you know, considered of all the 8,000 meter peaks, the, the hardest one really to climb by any route. And sometimes I tell people that it's a good thing we didn't know that back then. <laughs> but still, it was so intimidating. And then on that expedition, uh, Chris and I started to go different ways. And it really began when he started a, what seemed to be a, like an affair with one of the women climbers on the team. And, and her husband was a team member and several of us others on the team were just shocked and, and, and concerned that this would create a, a division in the team, and, and it did, but a very unlikely one, where the cool-colded husband stood up for his wife to make her own decisions. Wow. Remember, this was the 70s. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, John Ross Kelly, who was probably more offended by it than anybody else in the team, um, just splitting off into a separate group, and John was the strongest climber on the team, and I'd been doing some climbing with him and had hit it off with him and, and really enjoyed his company and, his, and, and so admired his climbing prowess and his strength and his skills. And I, I teamed up with him. And, and, it's, and it created a split with Chris and me that, uh, that continued after the climb. And I wanted to write a book about the climb. I had written one about our Everest climb and uh, 
Jim had agreed to anoint me as the guy who would write the story about our ascent, which was successful. John and I and two of the other team, Jim Wilkwire and Lou Reichert, made the summit. And I knew I wanted to write a book as honestly and forthright as I could. I just made that self-commitment to do that, and that would have to include descriptions of these issues we'd had as a team centered around Chris and his affair with Cherie Beck. And that's the book I wrote, and I knew I, I knew Chris wouldn't be happy, but I still had an expectation I could get him to realize that we all had to be honest with this, and I had to write as honestly as I could, and I think I did, and I went, I had the journals of all the other climbers to access, and I spent time uh, noting all the different descriptions of the conversations and even kind of like charting out where everybody was in agreement so I would only add in scenes where, you know, more than just me remembered it one way and not another. So I tried to be just as accurate as I could be and reconstructing the dialogue as well. And I went up to Seattle where Chris lived uh, with the manuscript and he insisted I, I don't publish it. And I said, Chris, this is just what happened. And it's not, it's, just, it's not just my opinion or recollection, but it's all the others who, whose notes I've compiled. And I explained the whole process. And he, he still was angry at me. And our division between us only widened. And it never closed, <clears throat> even uh, until about seven years later, with Cherie on an attempt in the winter on Kanjanjunga, Chris got cerebral edema and died while Cherie was trying to get him off the mountain. <clears throat> and she suffered extreme frostbite herself trying to save him, lost all 20 of her toes and fingers. And, you know, I wrote her a note a little letter trying to still build a reconciliation and she never wrote back. Rick's early years were certainly packed with adventure but they were also infused with life lessons. And with that came personal evolution. When Rick met Jonathan Wright, a talented freelance photographer, the two hit it off, forging a creative partnership in adventure filmmaking in the late 1970s. But where Rick's earlier partnership with Chris Chandler had centered solely around getting to the summits of mountains, his friendship with Jonathan went much deeper as the two would spend hours talking about subjects ranging from their impacts on the environment to Jonathan's exploration of Buddhism. These conversations were eye-opening for Rick, forcing him to look at his own ego and motivations. And that's exactly where things stood when they headed to a remote mountain in eastern Tibet in 1980.
I met Jonathan Wright on the Everest trip in 1976. He was hired to, as a cameraman on the film crew documenting the expedition for CBS Sports, another one of those television shows <laughs> that we talked about earlier that tried to over-dramatize everything. But Jonathan was not only undramatic, he was an understated. Uh, he was just the epitome of calmness um, and reflection. And that made him quite a good cameraman and photographer. But it also, it, it, it was a, it's what attracted me to him, this preternatural calmness. And, and, it, and it was rooted, I learned, through our friendship as I got to know him better, <clears throat> uh, through his experiences in, in the Himalayas where uh, he had been uh, on a couple of trips before the Everest trip, uh, mostly as a student of Buddhism, uh, going to monasteries and uh, going into week and months long periods of, of meditations and seeking out uh, mentors. And uh, that, I was sort of, I wasn't that kind of person. I was more, you know, outgoing. I had, as I said before, this ego thing going on. But yet, I had this attraction to Jonathan because I, I realized I had these, you know, kind of weaknesses in my own personality that, 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 that he didn't have. And I thought, you know, this is a guy that I can learn a lot from. And I just enjoyed his company. And, you know, we, it was a friendship built on talking about, you know, ideas where my friendship with Chris was, you know, doing things <laughs> and being, you know, climbing. What's our next adventure? What's our next expedition? And um, we didn't spend that much time talking about the meaning of life, as it were. <laughs> But Jonathan and I did. So I felt so excited after the Everest expedition to count him as an increasingly close friend. And, and while he was a cameraman on the television crew, his really central focus and passion was photography. And he was becoming one of uh, National Geographic's more important uh, photographers, a contract photographer but one of uh, increasing um, uh, regard within the National Geographic uh, editorial team. And Jonathan and I started <clears throat> discussing projects that we could do together where I would be the writer and he'd be the photographer. So we'd taken some of our ideas to National Geographic and um, they approved one to write a magazine story on the uh, newly chartered Mount Everest National Park in, in Nepal. And we started to shape that project, and Jonathan went to Nepal to take some preliminary photographs. <clears throat> he wanted to photograph the area in, in two different seasons. Uh, and then he came back from that initial trip uh, to find that we had both been invited uh, on this expedition to Minyakonka uh, in 1980, uh, the first year that China uh, opened its uh, borders to um, international mountaineers, only four years after the Cultural Revolution. And we had been invited to join a team uh, to attempt a peak in, uh, 
in the eastern margin of the Tibetan plateau called Minyakonka, or Gongachan as the Chinese called it. And Jonathan was, uh, again, a cameraman on the film crew hired to record the expedition. And I was both a field producer for the television crew and uh, a climber on the team. So I would be, in that way, both behind and in front of the camera. So this was like a a dream come true for Jonathan and me, especially since we convinced the National Geographic Society to support us going on this expedition and then attempting, if we could, to travel from Minyakonka across Tibet, which was still pretty close, to Lhasa, and from Lhasa all the way across the border into Kathmandu. And they'd said, yep, we'll um, help you pay for that uh, attempted crossing, even though trying to get a permit for that in those years was kind of off the charts. People hadn't, they weren't doing that yet. But it looked like we were going to get a permit to do that. And we were as excited as two kids in a sandbox could be. It just seemed like the whole world was uh, in front of us and that there was no barriers and no, you know, horizons that we couldn't, couldn't seek and, and actually get to. Um, and then we started talking about all the other things we could do together. We had another adventure in development for, to go to Antarctica and we were thinking about crossing Borneo and we had <laughs> all these dreams in front of us uh, and that's where we were um, that day on October 13th, 1980, uh, leaving uh, our Camp 2 position at about 18,000 feet and with two other climbers, Kim Schmitz and Yvonne Schuinard, carrying a load uh, from there up to our next camp at the base of the ridge uh, that we had selected to ascend at about 20,000 feet where we positioned uh, the camp and uh, cached our initial loads and were descending to uh, the previous Camp 1 when we kicked loose a a point-break avalanche. And at first I thought we could just kind of get off to the side, uh, sort of hop off the thing. It it started off really kind of slowly and, and it wasn't that big. Uh, but then the whole slope very quickly broke away, and I knew then that we weren't getting out of it. Uh, and as we started to get swept down the mountain in this avalanche, um, I knew that we not only were in trouble, but we were actually likely to die. And I remember the panic I felt um, just knowing that this was it. In my mind, uh, trying to go through the relationships with my family and my mother, and I didn't see any way we were going to get out of this alive, and and I was panicked. Uh, I think that's the only word to describe it. and then I got sucked down inside the snow and I knew that if somehow it did stop and I was buried, I wouldn't be able to get out. I knew that snow would just turn to concrete. So I did what you're supposed to do and tried to push and almost like swim. 
and I worked my way back up to the top and tried to breathe as fast as I could because I was short of breath. And then I remember riding this avalanching snow and just seeing a couple of my companions in front of me and then the whole thing just pitched over this cliff below Camp One. I knew the cliff well because I'd had to climb up it fixing ropes and, and I thought, we're dead for sure. And then we just spun down this, sped, then we sped down this couloir. I remember seeing the, the rocks whizzing by on both sides, just this thundering stone. Then I got sucked down again and I was getting hit pretty hard. I remember just feeling like I was being punched so hard and I came out again and tried to catch my breath. And then things did slow and I did find a calmness and I was able to think through a little more, just almost like slow down and pause and reflect that I was 30 years old, I was going to die in Tibet, but I'd had a great life. And that I, I remember thinking clearly I didn't have any regrets. I wouldn't have done it any differently. I remember thinking that. And then the snow started to slow, and then it fanned out on a little bit of a ledge, a slight alluvium, and stopped. And I thought, are we actually going to get out of this alive? And then it started to slide again towards another cliff. And I thought, no. I just screamed to myself. And then I did kind of panic again. I was, But it was a different kind of panic. It was like the panic from just, just anger that I thought I was going to live only to have my life taken from me again. And then it slowed and stopped, and that was it. And crawled off the side, trying to pull the rope, which was so taut. I finally got it un untied. And then I sat off to the side on a, on a rock in case it started to slide again. And just, I was so out of breath, I just breathed deeply and deeply and deeply. And then the next thing I did was to just inspect myself to see if I was injured. And I did have a, an arm that had been hit pretty hard and it didn't work very well. But other than that, I, I was okay. And I started to look around then at my companions and I soon realized that it looked like I was the least injured. Kim was above me and struggling against the rope and screaming that he couldn't breathe. And I could see his face was bloodied uh, with blood coming out of his mouth. And, and then Yvonne was nearby and he was just sitting in a daze, like staring off without saying anything. And, and, then, he, and then Jonathan was close and he was turned downhill in a kind of crumpled position. <clears throat> and so I started to go to him, but then Kim screamed and I went back to Kim to try to help him and I couldn't get the knot untied. And he was screaming that he was suffocating and couldn't breathe. And then uh, finally I got his knot untied and got him settled down off to the side a little bit. And, and I went back to Jonathan and, and I just remember the sinking feeling when I looked in his face and I could tell he was really badly injured. So I decided, I straightened him up being very careful in case his neck was broken to 
as I shifted him up. And, and then I looked in his face, and I, I can remember him looking at me. And I just said, Jonathan, you're still alive. We're all still alive. We're, we're going to get out of this okay. Uh, and then Kim screamed again. So I went back to Kim to try to settle him down. And then I went back to Yvonne to try to see if he was okay because then by then he had gotten up and was starting to wander around in a daze. I was afraid he was going to wander over this cliff and fall over. And I got him to sit down. And then I went back to Jonathan, but his eyes had rolled back in his head and he'd stopped breathing. And I started giving him mouth to mouth and, and he responded. He started breathing again. And then I just said, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. But I think he had lost consciousness by then. Uh, so Yvonne was wandering around and I yelled to him again to just to sit down and Kim was off to the side and seemed just laying on his side moaning in pain and I kept giving Jonathan mouth to mouth and he would breathe for a few breaths and stop and I would start resuscitating him again and he would continue to breathe and then stop uh, and then Yvonne came over and I told him just to stop wandering around and he said where are we I said Yvonne we're in China and he goes what mountain is this I said Yvonne it's Minyakonka he says what are we doing here he was at, you know he was like in a knocked out not conscious of where he was probably had a concussion <clears throat> and then I returned to Jonathan and after about what must have been close to a half hour trying to keep him alive I I just could see this change sweep out of him like it was it was not just his complexion but his whole being just suddenly shifted and I knew th that he just died I didn't even have to check his pulse I could see it in, in, in this this life in him that was just gone it was palpable and Yvonne was standing over me and and I don't think he understood so I remember looking at him and saying Yvonne Jonathan just died so I got Yvonne settled down and I got Kim as stabilized as I could and I I then climbed, down climbed and ran to our base camp and there were still a, a couple of our, a few of our team there so I told them what happened and they left uh, with the first aid kit and bivouac gear and to climb back up to Yvonne and Kim and, um, and they eventually got them back down. I was in our base camp by myself for quite a long time. And there was a lightning storm and, and a clasp of thunder. And I remember thinking that it was, uh, it was the, the sound of thunder uh, of Jonathan's soul as he was leaving us. So the next day, uh, we decided to bury Jonathan there. We filed his... Uh, mother and father and his wife would and his uh, brothers and sisters would 
would support us in that decision. So uh, I decided to go back first uh, to be there with him, and I climbed back to to where his body was, and he was frozen solid. And I just sat there with him, and and you know ran my fingers through his hair for a while. And the others arrived, and we built built a a platform of stones uh, and laid carried him to it and laid him on it on a promontory that we felt would be free of uh, avalanches and uh, and give him a a wonderful uh, panorama across this beautiful valley uh, covered him in these flagstones uh, in the area and put two bamboo wands uh, that had been glacier markers uh, at the head of his grave and strung prayer flags between them and started the the trek home. And back home is when I went into my own introspection trying to decide whether to keep climbing or not, uh, trying to think through what I had taken from my time in the mountains and the lessons I'd learned that I'd brought home back to sea level and applied to my my day-to-day life and all that I had learned from that. But was that worth it against the risk of uh, maybe getting killed if I were going to continue, of nearly getting killed and having one of my best friends die in my arms? And that was the introspection I was going through uh, not quite a year later when I had that breakfast with Pasang Kami, the Siddhar from our Everest expedition. After losing Jonathan in the avalanche, Rick was forced to reckon with his life in the mountains. For a time, he wondered if he should just quit climbing altogether. This period of introspection lasted a few years, but there were new adventures on the horizon. He bought a shack on a Californian beach. He got married and started a family. He kept making films, and he also started to learn about environmentalism and conservation two causes that would become driving forces in his life. I had a a professional transition in the um, 80s where the films and stories I began to work on shifted from the ones that were about me or that I was participating in uh, to recording uh, mostly with film expeditions that uh, other people were on. And sometimes... So that that was a shift, you know, because it wasn't about me, but it was about other people. And I, I did that very consciously. And it, and it wasn't easy and it wasn't 
comfortable because I was more comfortable working on projects and involved me because I was part of the story and I got to be in the story. So th there's the old ego coming out again. <laughs> but I, 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 did, I did make this transition and um, part of it was because that's how I made my living and uh, I needed the jobs and the, and the work. Uh, but it was still hard to make that shift and I, and I had to really think it through. I was very open-eyed about that or clear-eyed, I guess you would call it now to use that current popular phrase. But then there was also something else going on back then, and I can remember thinking about this really clearly. Uh, it was that some of the television shows I was making for channels like uh, ESPN and ABC, Wild World of Sports, and there were several other ones like that, Bill Bird Productions. <laughs> These television shows were really kind of sleazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I would, and, you know, some... Here we are again, you know, <laughs> and and that they, the production companies and the television channels would all uh, lean on me to make it as dramatic as I could, and what you know whether that was veering from the truth or not, you know, all the better actually. Uh, and so I wasn't proud of these, a lot of these things. <laughs> like, oh God, I hope nobody I know sees this thing. And right, you know if if they got back to me and they said, uh, we're not sure about that, we can give you full credit on this, I said, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I'm, I'm bringing this up because they offered me an opportunity to um, go out into the field with really interesting characters and people, the climbers, the adventurers, and other people when I was tasked, you know, as, when I got jobs filming other sports or other activities and 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 I got to go into really remote places in the world doing these in fact sometimes I would design uh and I would take an idea for one of these adventure shows that didn't involve me and and actually try to pick ones that were in the wildest most remote places so that I could get you know I I'd, I'd be able to go there and just have the experience of being there uh, and I didn't know what I would do with those experiences from a professional point of view. I didn't know if I'd be, you know, telling those stories or, or, or what they would add to my life. But I had this intuition that getting there and seeing it for myself was really important and it was going to be valuable uh, to just get a deep understanding of the wild part of the planet. And that's just what happened. So... I've had this, you know, career where climbing a peak like Aratidiope in the most remote corner of the Amazon jungle was, you know, I, I had learned over the years of research about this kind of really mysterious 2,000-foot granite spire in the most remote part of the Amazon, a place so remote that it was 80 miles, maybe even a little more than 80 air miles past the last Yanomami village and and those Yanomami had been contacted by anthropologists only in the last 10 years and this peak was in a place so remote that even they considered it on the edge of the known world so I put together a proposal to go there and um, I needed a couple of really good climbers to uh, be the subject of my story so I 
got a hold of, you know, Todd Skinner and Paul Piana. And, uh, and we went there, and I, and I made a film of them climbing the spire. But the real reason I wanted to do it was to get into that place to see it for myself and to get it into my bones, to really experience what it was like to be uh, in a place that was nearly untouched by human beings that had not seen our hand or footprint on the surface of the planet. And it was so magical to have that experience, to actually be there with the, in, in that part of the jungle with these wild people, with this wildlife that had never seen human beings. And it was, it, you could palpably feel that. So that was kind of my motivation for expeditions like that. And, uh, and it was, a, I wouldn't call it selfish. It was just my curiosity to see those places. And, and that became one of the, mo- the main motivations. Like I could figure out how to get paid to go there. <laughs> and, and through getting paid to go there, I could meet my obligations to my wife and kids and, you know, be uh, trying to support the family. But at the same time, have this kind of almost privileged opportunity to, to go to a place like that. <laughs> And those experiences uh, changed me. Uh, <clears throat> those experiences are what were the direct origin of my commitment to conservation. Uh, and so they had a real deep impact that, that I didn't know about, you know, in the beginning. There's a line I use in my book that occurred to me uh, at one point where I say that the best journeys answer questions that at the outset, you never thought to ask. Uh, and as I went on these expeditions into these wild places, uh, that's exactly what happened. I started to to ask myself questions about our species' relationship with wild places and wildlife that I had never thought to even ask before. And as I, I sought answers to th- some of those questions, that became the origins of my uh, commitment to conservation and environmentalism. And when I had the privilege to go on trips with uh, thought leaders in this uh, area, like Doug Tompkins and Yvonne Chouinard, they, they also became my mentors and my teachers. But, but so much of it is really rooted in those uh, experiences, uh, those privileged experiences to see back in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s, some of the most remote park pockets on our planet, and, and get to, to get to go there with native peoples and to get to go there with enough time to really immerse yourself into those places and, and, and get them into your soul. Shaky James and his half-mast tune. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Rick's stories as I did. And I hope you can apply some of his adventure and life wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. The truth is that my conversations with Rick barely touch the surface of his remarkable life. He's the kind of person I could spend days talking to. So if you want to learn more about Rick and his adventures, I'd highly recommend picking up a copy of Life Lived Wild, which you can buy online through Patagonia, Amazon, or any place where good books are sold. The Fernline is written and produced with original sound design and music by me, Evan Phillips. And today's outro music is by my good friend, the incredible songwriter, Tim Easton. You can find Tim's music anywhere online or at timeaston.com. 
If you're new to the Fern Line, thanks so much for listening to the show. And if you're an old, grizzled veteran, thanks for sticking around. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget you can support the show by becoming a subscriber over on Patreon or by picking up a t-shirt and other merch at thefernline.com. And speaking of Patreon, I want to give a big shout out to Leo Franchi for subscribing at the executive producer level. Thanks so much for the support, Leo. Also, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure and spread the word by telling a friend to give it a listen. All right, well, take care of yourselves, friends. Be safe out there in the mountains, and we will catch you next time on The Fern Line. Never the pity. It wasn't very hard to leave. No, it wasn't very hard to leave. In the bottom of the wind, there's a wish or two. So I never stop thinking on how to help you. Stop thinking on